0: Hi, Steve. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by James Dama, Matt Smith, K-10, and Nicholas. I'm going to introduce those folks in a second. And we are going to be diving into Tesla's FSD presentation at Tesla AI Day. And the reason why we're doing this is because I think Tesla showed some amazing progress. And oftentimes we can glance over it, not really understand. Um, really what they're doing. So in this video, we want to really dive into some of the details so we can get a better understanding of what Tesla's approach is, what type of progress they're making, and that will help us to anticipate and estimate in some ways, you know, where Tesla is headed in the future. So um, yeah, you guys know uh, James, um, yeah, our resident machine learning uh, expert here. Uh, Matt Smith is a partner at Good Soil, Soil uh, Investment Management. Is that right? Investment management? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Good uh, soil for with, sure. But yeah. Yeah. Great. Good soil. Uh, works with Emmett Peppers. Um, yeah. He's been on my channel a few times. And then we have Kristen K10 on Twitter. How are you doing? Great.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I had Kristen on my channel as an interview as well. And then we've got Nicholas Gibbs. He runs uh, Investing Against the Grain YouTube channel. So um, yeah, let's why don't we go ahead and, and get started? Before we go into the video, what I want to do is uh, paint some broad strokes of what Tesla is doing um, this year that's unique and different compared to maybe a year or two ago. Um, what are kind of the key things we should be looking out for as we kind of watch this video? And also, what are some important key questions that you guys have on the panel that you guys really want to get answered? Um, you know, during this video. So actually I want to put Matt on the spot here. Matt, what's kind of one kind of topic, question, thing that you're just wanting to get a better better handle on um, yeah, during this presentation?
2: Yeah, so one thing that actually came to mind that I realized I don't understand after watching AI Day again was, uh, Elon spoke a lot about how they were kind of stitching all the different camera views together into one stream and then using real-time video um, to, to use that i didn't really hear them talk about that at AI day so i'm not sure if they are still on that approach or if it's been given up and like you know to what extent that's working with the occupancy network or if that's just something completely different i realized you know the things that they said they were going to be doing six 12 months ago i'm not sure if they're still doing that or if they're still just talking about it in a different way
0: got it yeah sounds good um i, I will keep that in mind i think we'll probably hit hit it in the video here um kristen how about you is there anything kind of in particular with AI, Dave, specifically with the FSD portion that you're most interested in uh, learning more about?
1: Um, just the detailed analysis, I love to hear. I mean, just what James has to say in particular. So as we break it down, I would love to hear more of that.
0: Okay, perfect. And Nicholas, how about you? Anything that you're um, looking for?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if they covered this in it or not. So either way, just get James' point of view on this, but I'm really curious on how they determine ground truth for the data they put into FSD for the training because I see Farzad's videos in Austin and he has a lot of interventions, yet Omar in California has all these perfect drives. Me here, I hardly ever have an intervention or a takeover or anything. So I'm just curious how they bias that based on data from different geos. And where are you uh, based... Um, <laughs> I'm in Saint Petersburg, Florida. So, okay. most notably, Ark Invest headquarters now.
0: Okay, <laughs> perfect. Cool. Um, some of the things I'm looking for, um, I'm, I think the Tesla switch to um, focus on occupancy network or op- occupancy map, as James calls it, is significant. Their kind of volumetric approach, kind of geometry. Um, and what the future might hold for that. So what is Tesla set up for um, in the next year or two? And how is that specifically going to increase reliability, accuracy, safety in FSD? Um, Yeah, I've just noticed FSD has improved a lot just in the past 6 to 12 months I've been using it. Um, And um, yeah, it's exciting. So yeah, I'd love to dive into it. Anything, uh, James, before we start the video that you want to kind of highlight that might help us? to um keep in mind as we watch um their fsd presentation no,
4: i mean i I'd, I'd be inclined to just like summarize the ten thousand foot view that that um you know they have a trajectory they're moving along it they're inventing new uh as they bump into problems they come up with technical workarounds or they back up and they try it a different way and what we see this year is mostly more of the same right more of what they've been doing on FSD more of what we saw them uh, show us on uh, with respect to FSD on the on the first AI day, and and so of course you know there's a lot of details of new stuff that they're doing, but the overall you know gist of the program is that you know they're just continuing on their path.
0: Cool, awesome. Let's go ahead and we'll dive into the video, uh, James. If you can take control of the video controls, and the idea is we're going to watch maybe one to two minutes of video and then take some questions. And uh, if there's anything. Folks on the panel don't understand, um, yeah, let's go ahead and ask it and try to you know, get some better uh, understanding here.
5: Section. <laughs> um, we'll try nonetheless. Anyway, um, every Tesla that has been built over the last several years we think has the hardware to make the car drive itself. We have been working on the software to add higher and higher levels of autonomy. This time around last year, we had roughly 2,000 cars driving our FSD beta software. Since then, we have significantly improved the software's robustness and capability uh, that we have now shipped it to 160,000 customers as of today. This did not come for free. It came from the sweat and blood of the engineering team over the last one year. <laughs> um, for example, we trained 75,000 neural network models just last one year. That's roughly a model every eight minutes uh, that's you know, coming out of the team. And then we evaluate them on our clusters. And then uh, we ship 281 of those models that actually improve the performance of the car. And this pace of innovation is happening throughout the stack. The, the planning software, the infrastructure, the tools, even hiring, everything is progressing to the next level. The FSD beta software is quite capable of driving the car. It should be able to navigate from parking lot to parking lot, handling city street driving, stopping for traffic lights and stop signs, negotiating with objects at intersections, making turns and so on. All of this comes from the uh, camera streams that go through our neural networks that run on the car itself. It's not coming back to the server or anything. It runs on the car and produces all the outputs uh, to form the world model around the car. And the planning software drives the car based on that. Today, we'll go into a lot of the components that make up the system. The occupancy network acts as the base geometry layer of the system. This is a multi camera video neural network that, from the images, predicts the full physical occupancy of the world around the robot. So, anything that's physically present trees, walls, buildings, cars, walls, whatever you it predicts, if it's physically present, it predicts them along with their future motion. On top of this base level of geometry, we have more semantic layers. In order to navigate the roadways, we need the lanes, of course. But then the roadways have lots of different lanes and they connect in all kinds of ways. So, it's actually a really difficult problem for typical computer vision techniques to predict the set of lanes and the connectivities. So we reach all the way into language technologies and then pull the state of the art from other domains and not just computer vision to make this task possible. For vehicles, we need the full kinematic state to control for them. All of this directly comes from neural networks. Video streams, raw video streams come into the networks, goes through a lot of processing, and then outputs the full kinematic state. Like positions, velocities, acceleration, jerk, all of that directly comes out of the networks with minimal post-processing. That's really fascinating to me because how how is this even possible? What world do we live in that this magic is possible, that these networks predicts fourth derivatives of these positions when people thought we couldn't even detect these objects? My opinion is that it did not come for free. Uh, it, it required tons of data. So we had to build sophisticated auto labeling systems that churn through raw sensor data, run a ton of offline compute on the servers. It can take a few hours, run expensive neural networks, distill the information into labels that train our in car neural networks.
4: Okay, so that's a couple of minutes. Uh, we could let show uh, go ahead and finish this summary. Um, you want to do that or you want to- Yeah, do let's, have, let's a...
0: have him finish this and then we'll, we'll okay. head back for some questions.
4: On top of this, we
5: also use our simulation system to synthetically create images. And since it's a simulation, we trivially have all the labels. All of this goes through a well-oiled data engine pipeline where we first train a baseline model with some data, ship it to the car, see what the failures are. And once we know the failures, we mine the fleet for the cases where it fails Provide the correct labels and add the data to the training set. This process systematically fixes the issues. And we do this for every task that runs in the car. Yeah, and to train these new massive neural networks, this year we expanded our training infrastructure by roughly 40 to
4: 50%. OK, so it seems like they're moving on to training for yeah. now. Yeah. So Ashok gave us a little sort of breakdown. They, they sort of have this, this pseudo diagram of the system, which is. Uh, sort of, they have they've put a box in here for each thing that they're gonna talk about today. So that's kind of the organization of this little diagram that they have going on. But he, he's giving us a top level view of like what FSD does. I guess a, a lot of this stuff we already, like people who've been driving the car and following Tesla, they probably already know a lot of this stuff. So any questions pop out of this uh, summary?
2: I've got a, a stupid one to, to just start with. Uh, and this is something I noticed when I was watching the, the dojo video. Um, could, could you explain the compiler? Cause I, I just have no idea what that is. Uh,
4: yeah. So the, um, so a compiler basically takes human written code and turns it into something that can run on a machine. That's what a compiler is. That's the general term that goes in. So you, you, uh, compilers, you know, they have different compilers that they use at different places inside the system. When we were talking about Dojo yesterday, the, the compiler in question is the stack of software that t- basically takes the Python. Uh, Python is a computer programming language. Uh, it, uh, PyTorch is a framework for describing machine learning models in, inside the Python language. And so basically, you can write um, a description of your neural network in Python using the PyTorch framework. And then what their compiler does is it takes that human written code and it turns it into a neural network that you can then stick on Dojo and it runs. So that's, it's a piece of software that does that uh, translation.
2: So- and, it, and I think in that in that box, it was coupled with, with uh, inference, is that right? And if so, like why do, why do those two things go together in that diagram?
4: Yeah, so inference uh, neural networks, they kind of have two general, uh, modes. There's the, the mode where you're training it. Um, you start with a blank neural network that has some shape, and then you have a bunch of training examples that you want to train it on. And the shape determines what you put into it, what comes out of it and sort of the general nature of the computation that occurs inside the exact computation is determined by what the neural network learns after you show it lots of training examples. So that's training. When you take a, a trained neural network and then you use it in the world, in the real world to do some kind of job, that process is called inference. And inference is just basically, I've got my trained neural network, I give it an input, I get an output. So um, in order to get um, in in a, in a car, you can only put so big a computer and it can only take so much power and it can only cost so much. So. Um, so one of the challenges uh, you uh, is with getting a high-performance neural network system running in a car. You always want to run the biggest network that you can inside, you know, for inference if you really care about performance. So one of the one of the things that that Tesla is going to want to do is they're going to want to optimize. That is, you um, you design your neural network you run it through the compiler and you get something that's a certain size and it takes a certain amount of computer hardware to run it in real time. But they wanna, in order to run the biggest neural network that you can get away with, you can do this other thing which is optimization where you you essentially there's a component of the compiler that doesn't just do a straightforward translation to the target hardware. It knows all about all different kinds of tricks that it can do to get it to run, to get it to take less memory and take fewer cycles uh, to execute. And so part of the presentation that we end up seeing here is where uh, they spend some time talking about how their optimizer works so that they can run a bigger neural network on this same hardware in the car.
0: That's helpful, thanks. Got it. Okay. Kristen, uh, Nicholas, do you guys have any questions for James on this first kind of section, the outline?
3: Yeah, I got a quick question. Um, so we heard him talk about the occupancy network essentially being the the geometry part of it. And then you have the objects and lanes. I, I've seen, and I'm sure you've all experienced where you're using FSD beta and we get to a road that has a road closed sign on it. Can the neural nets read those signs or are they just looking at shapes of a stop sign and not getting that granular? Because it seems like sometimes it can't read. Sometimes I feel like it can read. And I'm just kind of confused about that.
4: Uh, yeah. So to the best, uh, as far as I can tell, they're not actually doing optical character recognition, which is essentially you see a piece of text and then you decompose it, turn it into text, and then try to use that knowledge to understand what's going on. They do recognize a really wide variety of signs, but the way that they do that is they get lots of examples of the signs. And then they basically, instead of, you know, the trying to get the car to understand that the word closed means closed instead, what they, they pull examples of signs from the real world that that will have the word closed printed on them and various symbols or various shapes and whatnot and get the car to just basically categorize all of those as a stop sign, or you can't go uh, forward thing. So at this point it's they're, they're, they deal with signs as an object recognition problem.
3: Okay. So would you say they're just recognizing the shape of the sign, or are they also recognizing the shape of the letters? And be like, oh, that means closed.
4: They can do both. Uh, the markings. Uh, it it's pretty likely that the neural network is what. Well, for instance, when you drive past a speed limit sign, you know it it it's taking the speed off the sign and it's using that, but it's not. Uh, so if you show uh, a neural network, a bunch of different speed limit signs at different speeds, the main difference is the numbers on the sign. So yeah. what the neural network learns is like this shape means 55 miles an hour and that shape means 60, which is not quite okay. the same thing as uh, trying to read the text and extract. Yeah. It's just, you know, cause it's got a bunch of, uh, so for instance, if you pass a 54 mile an hour speed limit sign, it's not gonna get that one. <laughs> Right. Because there aren't, you know, if if somebody made some weird speed limit sign, it would look at that and say, well, that looks kind of like 55. And I have 55 in my example database. And so you'd probably get 55 miles an hour off of that. So it's not trying to do OCR, optical character recognition, at the level that you might want to. And, And in the long run, they will do that. They don't do it now. It's a thing that they could do. It's not high on the list of priorities of problems that, that they've got to do, eventually they will, because OCR isn't that hard to do and they have enough performance in the car to be able to do it, but it's this whole engineering effort. They'd, had to, they'd have to dedicate resources to it. And it's just, I would imagine, not a priority right now.
0: Awesome, thank you. Um, James, I'm wondering what is the, uh, I mean, maybe we could, I think later on in the presentation, they talk about lanes a bit more, but um, what is the pro- progression of, uh, like using neural nets with lanes, um, did it start out more heuristically um, and then did it slowly move over to more neural nets taking over that job of recognizing lanes? Um, and what's happened in the past like year or two uh, with that?
4: So recognizing lanes how they recognize lanes and what they use to understand a lane has evolved as the software's become more sophisticated and they've had more hardware to deal with. On AP1, they were using uh, Mobilize uh, uh, hardware and Mobilize software to do this thing. And Mobileye was basically, they had a vision-based system that was identifying a lane by looking for lane markings. So basically, I don't, if, if, if anybody used AP1, I used it quite a bit. If you didn't have two lane lines, it wasn't a lane and the car wouldn't drive on it. So that was a big constraint in, in AP1. Uh, when they moved to, uh, to AP2, which is when they first had the GPU version, uh, AP2 and AP 2.5, um, they started developing neural networks to do this stuff. Now neural networks can look at all different kinds of things in the context to try to understand what the lane is. But in the beginning, they started with the same thing Mobileye was doing and tried to basically replicate it. So they started out by looking for lanes. In the early days of AP2, it had a similar kind of constraint. It wanted to see two lane lines. But over time, they... uh, they their ambition expanded. They knew that ultimately they needed to be able to drive on roads that didn't have lane lines. So to free themselves from that, they started marking other things too in the stuff. And this is all still in the camera view. So they would look for the edge of the road, or a curb, other things that would indicate where the boundary was. Maybe where there's grass or where there are obstacles, and decide on that basis what it was. So what you saw if you drove the car is gradually it didn't need two lane lines. It was okay with one. And then eventually, maybe you don't need two two of them if the, you can see the pavement really well on both sides or if you have curbs or whatnot. So now all of this st- was still in the camera field of view. This was the neural network was taking in what it saw on the camera and essentially saying, oh, this is a lane line. This is, um, you know, the edge of the pavement. This is a curve. And in between those is my lane. Over time, they've moved away from doing this in the camera view. Um, There's, I think we've talked before about bird's eye view networks and bird's eye view networks are how they stitch the cameras together. That is in the beginning, they thought that they'd be able to drive the car by having eight different cameras, labeling everything in the view, and then having some code that would basically take this list of objects that it was seeing, whether it was cars or pedestrians or lane lines or obstacles, and that. that that would be enough that they could write some code that would sit on top of this that could manage the driving problem but the 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 challenge that they ran into with this was kind of an accuracy limitation because the cameras all have boundaries you run into this problem where when things cross the boundary it can be hard to sort of understand the holistic continuity of all the objects around the car and so they were constantly bumping into accuracy problems near these camera transitions so they switched to a system where instead of having eight separate cameras where they were trying to label all the stuff and then the software was responsible for understanding this one was looking left and that one was looking right, you know, and this is the back half of a car and that on this other camera is the front half of the same car, like that gets kind of challenging. They were, they started looking for ways to to integrate the cameras at kind of a geometry level where when you fed it, when once you went past that level Um, it was all brought together into a single, um, you know, 360 degree surround view. So at that time, they were calling this surround cameras. Later, it became surround video because in the beginning, it was just single frames they were trying to stitch. And then as they discovered problems that they couldn't do, even with the single frames, they started instead of looking at single frames, but looking at 10, 15, 20 second long clips of video, Stitching that stuff together. And that also helps all the all the continuity come together. So there's been this progression of they try it a certain way. It's not good enough. They look for opportunities to do better. They add more sophistication to it. And they we get gradually more and more integration. So at the point that we're at right now, the way it understands a lane line is... It projects this kind of bird's eye view understanding of the world around the car, and it looks at all the context. Like, an FSD can take into account all kinds of things. Like, FSD can see a sequence of cones and infer that there that those things are a lane boundary, for instance. Um, all all different kinds of, of markers. It can see tire tracks in snow and decide that this is where a lane is because it's seen that. Or the you know if you're driving in the rain, um, it the you know, there's a texture to the water, which is delineated by where tires go on the road. And so all of these little context things, and it, it'll go a little farther too. When it's trying to guess where the lane goes oh, out over the hill or around the corner, it can also take into account things like where do the trees go or where do the power poles go it on for the road, I part of the road I can't see. Where do the buildings go on this road, you know, past this car, which is blocking my view of the road ahead of me where does the lane probably go based on the other cars or the buildings or the trees or, or whatever. So at this point, everything it sees gets pulled into trying to understand what the lane is.
0: Got it. So, um, the lane, um, detection you're saying is basically more from the bird's eye view. So is this separate from the whole occupancy network, which is trying to get volumetric, you know, representation of their surroundings?
4: Um, Uh, no, it's not separate. So occupancy networks are a means to an end. They're not really an end in themselves. Occupancy networks are another way. So once you have the the basic bird's eye view is what would the roads and stuff look like if I was just drawing a map, if I was above the car, looking down, if I had a bird's eye view of the car, what would I see? But there are a lot of things where just knowing where they are on the ground isn't good enough. For instance, say you have something hanging out into the road. Like you have a truck that has something hanging off of it that you might bump into so how do you represent that in the bird's eye view well you know it's present in the map at a certain height but not at a different height so then they at that point they started having multiple bird's eye view they they had 10 of them and they had one at ground level one a foot higher one a foot high above that and so on so they had it went up to 10 feet tall and so when the car was driving it took into account all 10 of these bird's eye maps that because then you could have stuff hanging on the road, or you could have things that were weird shapes. Um, although, uh, and that worked pretty well for things that you could identify. But at some point, you start wanting to deal with stuff where you don't have a category of it. For instance, yesterday I used the example of a pile of dirt, right? Or you could have some debris in the road, and and uh, you the you might not know what it is, but it still has a shape, and you want to deal with it. So they started. Uh, working on an approach that doesn't just identify and label objects and have sizes and locations for them, but beyond that, it it basically understands what space is occupied and what it's occupied by and what space isn't occupied and use that in addition to the object understanding that they had of the world to to basically figure out what the safely navigable space uh, was in the environment. So, so in a sense, occupancy, the output of the occupancy networks now goes into, they have another neural network that digests the occupancy network, which is itself built by a different neural network. And that neural network basically says, based on all this stuff I see in the, in the occupancy network, this is where the lanes are. And the reason you need a neural network for that is because when you come to an intersection that has like 20 lanes and all different kinds of, you know, marks on the ground and cars moving around and whatnot, figuring out where all the lanes are is pretty complicated. So instead of trying to write a really complicated program to do that, we give it to a neural network.
0: Got it. So basically, you're saying um, to really find out the lanes, the neural nets need the information from the occupancy networks first. Basically. Yeah, that
4: that okay. is how they're doing it now. Okay. Now, they're all of these things, you could imagine lots of different approaches to so most of what we're talking about is what Tesla is doing based on you know, it's the best thing they've discovered so far. And that's how, how, uh, you know, why they're doing it the way that they are. That, that's not to say that there aren't other ways or that they won't in the future find better ways of doing it and switch yeah. to those.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, any more questions before we go back to the video? Okay, let's go for it. Let's uh, continue on. So
5: that sits us at about 14,000 GPUs today across multiple training clusters in the United States. Um, we also work on our AI compiler Which now supports new uh, operations needed by those neural networks and map them to the uh, the best of our underlying hardware resources. And our inference engine today is capable of distributing the execution of a single neural network across two independent system on chips, essentially two independent computers interconnected within the same full cell driving computer. And to make this possible, we had to keep a tight control on the end to end latency of this new system. So we deployed more advanced scheduling code across the full FSD platform. All of these neural networks running in the car together produce the vector space, which is again the model of the world around the robot of the car. Then the planning system operates on top of this, coming up with trajectories that avoid collisions, are smooth, make progress towards the destination using a combination of model based optimization uh, plus neural network uh, that helps optimize it to be really fast. Today, we are really excited to present progress on all of these areas. We have the engineering leads standing by to come in and explain these various blocks. And these power not just the car, but the same components also run on the Optimus robot that Milan showed earlier. With that, I welcome Puddle to start talking about the planning section.
6: Hi, all. I'm Perenjay. Let's use this intersection scenario to dive straight into how we do the planning and decision making in our pilot. So we are approaching this intersection from a side street and we have to yield to all the crossing vehicles. Right as we are about to enter the intersection, the pedestrian on the other side of the intersection decides to cross the road without a crosswalk. Now, we need to yield to this pedestrian, yield to the vehicles from the right, and also understand the relation between the pedestrian and the vehicle on the other side of the intersection. It's a lot of these intra-object dependencies that we need to resolve in a quick glance. And humans are really good at this. We look at a scene, understand all the possible interactions, evaluate the most promising ones, and generally end up choosing a reasonable one. So let's look at a few of these interactions that Autopilot system evaluated. We could have gone in front of this pedestrian with a very aggressive longitudinal lateral profile. Now obviously we are being a jerk to the pedestrian and we would spook the pedestrian and a skew We could have moved forward slowly, short for a gap between the pedestrian or, and the vehicle from the right. Again, we are being a jerk to the vehicle coming from the right, but you should not outright reject this interaction in case this is only safe interaction available. Lastly, the interaction we ended up choosing stay slow initially, find the reasonable gap, and then finish the manual after all the agents pass. Now, evaluation of all of these interactions is not trivial, especially when you care about modeling the higher-order derivatives for other agents. For example, what is the longitudinal jerk required by the vehicle coming from the right when you assert in front of it? Relying purely on collision checks with marginal predictions will only get you so far, because you will miss out on a lot of valid interactions. This basically boils down to solving a multi-agent joint trajectory planning problem over the trajectories of Ego and all the other agents. Now, how much ever you optimize, there's going to be a limit to how fast you can run this optimization problem. It will be close to, close to order of ten milliseconds, even after a lot of incremental approximations. Now, for a typical crowded, unpredictable lift, say you have more than twenty objects, each object having multiple different feature modes, the number of relevant interaction combinations will blow up. We, the planner needs to make a decision every fifty milliseconds. So, how do we solve this in real time?
4: We rely on a framework. What? We... That might be a good place to stop. So, is is it clear what? Uh... What the speaker is addressing in terms of a challenge in the technology on what's going on here?
3: I oh, I'll, I'll let everybody else answer. <laughs> for, for, for me,
2: it was yeah, I've, I've a small question, but it... go ahead. Okay, um, so yeah, I, when when he's talking about this, I mean, clearly the car has to infer that, but it also seemed that he's talking about the training aspects of something somehow. So, you know. Was that example that he was going through something that was in their training center and just like where in the whole development of all the different neural nets that they're using, did that one particular example fit in so that when it gets to the car, your car is making that same decision instead of just out of the training program.
4: Yeah. So that is not what he's doing and this is not a normal <laughs> okay, training good. sort of problem so the the car there's kind of three broad categories of stuff that that the that the system has to do to control the car one of them is understanding the environment like what what is the situation right now that's perception then there's a planning thing which is you have a goal and you have a perception you know like what's your current situation and then you and then like how do i figure out what the what sequence of the actions that i've do in this situation will get me closer to my goal. And then there's control, which is basically once you have the plan, then you make the card do that. So this presentation is, ex- is exclusively about the planning aspect of what's going on. So he's taking as an input that the system already has all of its perception, which is mainly what the neural network, uh, the n- network does. Now, they use neural networks in their planning, but planning itself is not a neural network planning on the the way the car, you know, operates today is mostly a heuristic program, but they can use neural networks to speed up some of the, some of the rules that they want to do. And what he's doing in this presentation, what he's done so far is he's described a problem. Like, you know, we have a complicated interaction and how do we consider all the different ways that we might want to deal with this? So in this example, he's saying, well, say we have a pedestrian walking across the road and he's using an example that the car actually captured to sort of illustrate what's going on. But but that's um, the example that he's using is not part of a train. I mean, they might use it for training, but uh, what, what's important about what uh, he's talking about right now is not like, how does the neural network get trained to do this? Cause they're not using a neural network to do this planning. After this, he's gonna walk a little bit through how they do the heuristic. And after he does that, he's going to show us some little neural networks that they use to speed up parts of the heuristic that would otherwise be too slow. Because the planning has to happen in real time. The car has to constantly come up with useful solutions to the problems it encounters quick enough for it to take action. So, in in here he describes it as being about 50 milliseconds. So, So so those those
2: three different scenarios that he showed of, of, um, you know, like shooting in front of the pedestrian, shooting in front of the oncoming car, and then kind of waiting and and then speeding up. Those were three different uh, scenarios that the FSD chip in the car itself came up with. And, and it chose one of those on the fly. Is that right? Yes.
4: So, at, so when your car is driving, like it's constantly going to encounter these kinds of situations, especially like when you're interacting with other people in intersections and you have a choice about, about what you're going to do, but not, this isn't just like go no go decisions. There are lots of other decisions that, that the car would have to do where there's, you might have two three five ten 10 different things that you could do. And, And each of those, you might have to make another decision in quick succession. And so you have to make this, you have to like, what's my best choice now considering the situation it'll put me in if I take, if I take that one and how I resolve that one and so on. So there's kind of you, this is, these problems are these sort of figuring out what to do problems. They're frequently modeled as like search trees or like, you know, so here's three things I could do right now. And then based on those, it would put me in another situation. And then for each of those, I have some things I could do. And then, you know, for each of those, depending on which one I choose, then I'll have these other things I can do. And what you wanna do is figure out what path through your set of future options gives you the best result. And in this case, he's describing about, he's describing, uh, you know, the criteria by which they rank these things. Because obviously if you're gonna pick a best path, you have to have some sense of like, what's better and what's worse. Uh, and so he's describing an, alg- an algorithm they use for planning for basically um, for making these kinds of decisions. And he, he's using a pedestrian crossing the street while a car is coming. So you've got this multiple interaction that mm-hmm. you have to think through uh, as, an, as sort of an example for, of, of how it does this kind of planning.
1: Along the lines of what you said with the pedestrian crossing the street and choosing to make the better decision, it, can the system, does it label like humans can they be labeled as a higher priority in the system?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, I would assume so, but I just wanna hear that.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, all objects get categorized and they have a special category that they call VRUs, vulnerable road users. So uh, pedestrians, people on bicycles, especially, motorcyclists also, to some extent, people on a moped, they, all of those people will, they get especially high priority. And there have been times where we have seen the car. In fact, recently in like uh, uh, 10.11 and 10.12, there was a lot of complaint in 10.69, when it first came out, a lot of the beta testers were complaining that it seemed like it was being really, um, you know, sort of jerky around vulnerable u- road users because they had turned that priority up so high <laughs> that the car would encounter pedestrians and be kind of, you know, Dittery. afraid. To
1: proceed. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, As I was driving FST the past few days um, and reflecting on AI day, I was just appreciating how fast the computer needs to make decisions. Um, And like when it's when it sees a car, you know, slow down a little bit or just I'm trying to. Gauge like you know how quickly the, the car is making those decisions, and it's like so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it almost feels instantly, instantaneous. You know the 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 speed, and it's interesting how um yeah the speaker is saying every twenty milliseconds or fifty milliseconds they need to make the decision. That's sure. like twenty t- or twenty times a, a second. Yeah. You know they're they're making these are complicated decisions with many ramifications that has to think through. You know before making that decision, and um yeah it's uh, pretty pretty crazy stuff.
3: Is, is that, so you mentioned that it's heuristics, so human coded, is, is the idea that that will eventually get eaten up by a neural net that they'll develop? Because it I imagine be. the amount of iterations would be a lot more than nine or 10 that the heuristics have. Instead, it would be, you know, so many until it actually gets refined. Um, but do you think that's their end goal is to essentially make everything within the parameters of a, of a neural net?
4: I think that their end goal is to make the best system that they can and that they use neural networks where that's the best option. It turns out that neural networks, there are lots of situations where it's the best option. In this case, we're seeing like a nice little breakdown of how they looked at, so, until pretty recently I think planning was almost 100% human written code and as they go along and like they this uh, this tree search thing where they're trying to figure out what should I do in this situation should I go ahead of the pedestrian but, should I go ahead of the pedestrian behind the pedestrian in front of the car or wait for the car wait for the car to go by that this is a a, a three example um but they have to do this really fast. So uh, if you if you do enough math to sort of understand the ramifications of all of these things using, say, a physics model, to you know, for instance, you might want to know if I pull ahead of this car, how much does the car have to slow down? And so you have this whole physics model about like how fast can I accelerate? How fast is that car coming? What will the gap close to safely? How hard will that guy have to break? And am I making him break? hard enough that it's either that it's either a safety risk or it's just being really rude, you know? So you might have these different thresholds, whereas you could take that thing and toss it into a, into a, a neural network, which just is like a thumb in the wind. That looks bad. I won't do that. So, um, but then you have to train a neural network and collect all the data in one. Like the neural networks are, they're rarely the easiest solution. They're the thing you reach for when you just can't do it any other way reasonably. And that's what they're doing in this situation. They they have a, a heuristic that is basically doing the planning. It's responsible overall for what's going on. But when it has little things that it can't do fast enough to evaluate, like as it works down the tree, if it wants to make a guess about, well, how bad is it if I pull in front of this guy? it might toss that into a neural network because a neural network can quickly knock back a rough number just based on the general situation.
0: Okay, cool. Let's go back to the video here.
6: It's called as interaction search, which is basically a paralyzed research over a bunch of maneuver trajectories. The state space here corresponds to the kinematic state of ego, the kinematic state of other agents, the nominal future multi- multimodal predictions, and all the static entities in the scene. The action space is where things get interesting. We use a set of maneuver detector candidates to branch over a bunch of interaction decisions, and also incremental goals for a longer horizon maneuver. Let's walk through this research very quickly to get a sense of how it works. We start with a set of vision measurements, namely lanes, occupancy, moving objects. These get represented as sparse fractions, as well as latent features. We use this to create a set of goal candidates. Lanes, again, from the lanes network, or unstructured regions which correspond to a probability mask derived from human demonstrations. Once we have a bunch of these goal candidates, we create three trajectories using a combination of classical optimization approaches, as well as our network planner, again, trained on data from the customer fleet. Now, once we get a bunch of these three trajectories, we use them to start branching on the interactions. We find the most critical interaction. In our case, this would be the interaction with respect to the pedestrian, whether we assert in front of it or yield to it. Obviously, the option on the left is a high penalty option. It likely won't get prioritized. So we branch further onto the option on the right, and that's where we bring in more and more complex interactions, building this optimization problem incrementally with more and more constraints. And the research keeps flowing, branching on more interactions, branching on more goals. Now, a lot of tricks here lie in evaluation of each of, each of this node of the research. Inside each node, initially we started with creating trajectories using classical optimization approaches, where the constraints like I described would be added incrementally. And this would take close to one to five milliseconds per action. Now, even though this is a fairly good number, when you want to evaluate more than 100% interactions, this does not scale. So we ended up building lightweight queryable networks that you can run in the loop of the planner. These networks are trained on human demonstrations from the fleet. As well as offline
4: solvers with relaxed time limits. With this, so uh, this is. I'm going to pause here a second because it goes to some of the stuff that we were talking about a second ago. Also, I feel like this could really quickly get overwhelming. So on the left, what what we see these this this uh, these colored circles with the lines and arrows in between them. This is the tree of options that they're searching through. Um, now these all of these nodes aren't equivalent. He starts with goals and then he picks trajectories. Uh, and then, uh, then, then there's a state. The, the third row is a state that gets predict, predicted from those. And then, uh, and then uh, the next one after that is an is a, is is the state is an evaluatable state. So they've color coded these. The greener ones are the better choices. So they're kind of showing in this tree, you know, like on the top row, there's there's you know three greens of varying hues and a yellow, and the greener one is the better choice. So they choose. The greenest one, and then they evaluate down the train as they're as they're working down this, uh, working their way down this tree. So this is just kind of a diagram to give you a general a general sense of what of what's going on. Now, previously he told us that like they have lots of situations where in order to come up with in order to evaluate it, they have to run through maybe hundreds of these of these little circles and evaluation. So you wanna be able to evaluate each one really quickly. And in this slide, he's showing us that what they used to do is a physics-based numerical optimization. That's this, the square that's kind of in the middle that has the colorful 3D graph on it. But what they found was that when they did it that way, each, each evaluation, evaluating a single node was taking one to five milliseconds. So in that situation, it's hard to make quick, like if you have to make a decision in 50, Uh, milliseconds, you might only be able to consider, you know, 10 different possibilities, which might not be enough to be able to make a good decision. So what they did in this situation was instead, they switched to what they're calling here a neural planner, where essentially they're letting a neural network take over this. And instead of trying to do a physics based model of what is going on, it has a neural network that just looks at the characteristics and says, you know, Uh, essentially in other situations, this was the good decision, right. And instead of like essentially trying to sort of simulate what is going on. Does that all make sense?
3: Yeah. So a a lot of times you, you, you hear people talk about how FSD is limited on compute and that's why it takes so much time to think, but this is almost a perfect example where there's a lot of stuff we can still do with the software to improve latency. I mean, just this alone, just look at those time differences.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, they went from one to five milliseconds to 100 microseconds per action. Actually, one of the nice things about neural networks, a lot of heuristic code, you know, you have loops and evaluations and you run through some code until you get to some fit until you get to some halting state. And it can take different amounts of time depending on, you know, the situation. But uh, neural networks are super deterministic. Like every time you run a neural network, you always run exactly the same set of weights. So it always takes exactly the same amount of time. So you'll notice he, you know, he's saying that the the neural planner takes hundred microseconds, like no matter how complicated the situation is, hundred microseconds. So it's very predictable. And that can be a big, an advantage in situations like this, where, uh, you know, if you're in a complicated situation, you don't necessarily want your planner to be taking longer. That's probably exactly where you don't want your planner to be taking longer.
0: Got it. Um, so James, um, Regarding training these neural planners, um, I'm imagining like you just feed in kind of the beginnings, right? The, the the lanes, occupancy, moving objects of a situation. You already have the results. If you do the physics-based you know, optimization, you have what mm-hmm. physics would give you. It takes a bit of time. That gives you the training, basically, material where you could sure. train the neural nets. So you can get basically the same results as the physics optimization, but yet so much faster because it's not doing the actual calculations, right?
4: Because it's remembering the right answer instead exactly. of having to figure it out.
0: It's a shortcut, yeah. yeah.
4: It's a, actually here, you'll notice if you, if you look at the text, they they train their neural planner on human demonstrations. So they actually have an even, even easier solution. They basically, they look at what drivers do when they're driving the car in these kinds of situations. And so the neural planner in this sense it's not trying to predict what the best situ- what the best possible thing would be. What it you you, it's seen lots and lots of examples of humans doing this, and what the neural planner is doing is it's predicting what would a human do here.
0: Got it. It seems like it's doing both right now, right? It's doing the human and then also this physics training as well, right? Well,
4: so uh, according to the verbal description, uh, he was showing the trajectory gener- generation, the left. Uh, the left selection, the physics-based numerical optimization, was what they had been doing, and recently they've added a, uh, a neural planner to it. So, yeah, it, uh, at least but up until now, it's not clear th- like if they switch or if they yeah. just added it.
0: But what I mean is the neural planner is trained off of human driving, but also offline physics calculations too, right?
4: It would kind of make sense to do that. Um, But Mm -hmm. here, they're only telling us that it's trained off of human interactions. They're not telling us that it's trained off of simulation. Mm -hmm. So
0: you don't think the offline solvers are the actual, the first part, the the physics optimizations, those calculations? It could be. Hmm. Okay.
3: So just to clarify, James, real quick. Mm -hmm. So what we see on the left, the Christmas tree essentially uh, decision-making, that is still heuristics but we're using the neuroplanner planner and the neural net essentially to make our way to that Christmas tree in a very effective, efficient way. Time wise.
4: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, it, as you work your way through at, at each row, you have to, you have to sort of, you know, what are my best three or four choices? And of those, which ones do I want to examine? So you have to, for each one of these circles, you have to run a little evaluation to decide which one you're going to take. And then you search farther down the tree based on, what seems to be the best options that you have at each point. So this this uh, this kind of hybrid situation is how, for instance, uh, like early AlphaGo. When when you play board games, you know at any particular point, I could do this move, I could do that move, I could do the other one, and then if you do that what situation are you in? And after that, like, now, what are your choices? And how do those look? And so on. So it's often in computer science modeled as a tree problem, like you have a set of decisions, and those lead to new situations, which lead to new decisions, and so on. And the better player or the you get better results, the farther down the tree, you can search in a fixed amount of time. So in this case, they were not being able to search as much of the tree as they would like to because each individual evaluation was just taking too long. Mm. So the neural planner basically reduced that by 10 or 50 X. And now they can look farther down the tree so they can make better decisions more quickly.
0: Got it. All right, let's uh, continue on with the video.
6: We were able to bring the rundown, runtime down to close to 100 microseconds per action. Now, doing this alone is not enough because you still have this massive pre-search that you need to go through, and you need to efficiently prune the search space. So, you need to do, a, do scoring on each of these trajectories. Few of these are fairly standard. You do a bunch of collision checks. You do a bunch of comfort analysis. What is the jerk and access required for a given maneuver? The customer fleet data plays an important role here again. We run two sets of, again, lightweight queryable networks, both really augmenting each other. One of them trained from interventions from the FSD beta fleet which gives a score on how likely is a given maneuver to result in interventions over the next few seconds. And second, which is purely on human demonstrations, human-driven data, giving a score on how close is your given selected action to a human-driven trajectory. This scoring helps us prune the search space, keep branching further on the interactions, and focus the compute on the most promising outcomes. The the cool part about this architecture is that it allows us to create a cool blend between our data-driven approaches, where you don't have to rely on a lot of hand-engineered costs, but also grounded in reality with physics-based checks. Now, a lot of what what I described was with respect to the agents we could observe in the scene, but the same framework extends to objects behind occlusions. We use the video feed from eight cameras to generate the 3D occupancy of the board. The blue mask here corresponds to the visibility region, we call it. It basically gets blocked at the first occlusion you see in the scene. We consume this visibility mask to generate what we call as ghost objects, which you can see on the top left. Now, if you model the spawn regions and the state transitions of these ghost objects correctly, if you tune your control response as a function of their existence likelihood, you can extract some really nice human-like behaviors. Now
4: I'll pass it on to Phil to describe more on how we generate these occupancy networks. Thank you. Okay, he's about to move on to the next one. Did uh, the, so the, the tail end of the discussion on the tree search was just basically, and you know, sort of filling in the details, but it was consistent with what we talked about before. Did uh, anything pop out for anybody there before we yeah, talked about mean, the Yeah, so I had a question. Um
0: I noticed this slide and at AI Day, I was like, wow, this is interesting. They have a human-like discriminator. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering, and they also had this comfort analysis, but in the past six months, I've noticed FSD get so much better at um, driving like a human, meaning a different, let's say you're doing a windy road. It just will slow down at the right times. It just feels like a human. Do you think that this human-like discriminator is part of that kind of solution plus kind of the comfort analysis that they're adding
4: into network it's not restricted to situations where you have these very black and white you know uh, decisions go in front of or behind the pedestrian coming into a corner you could also use your planner to say you know where you know how fast do i want to go when i'm going around it and what you know what are my choices for negotiating this curve
0: got it yeah.
4: And they, and they mentioned that comfort is, is obviously there's, you know, there are higher priorities than comfort, but comfort's also a priority. And they, they specifically call that out by, I mean, they look at comfort as uh, the amount of jerk, which is, you know, you have, uh, you, you have the there's position and the first derivative is velocity. And the second derivative is acceleration. So, you know, maximum acceleration matters how fast acceleration changes. The next derivative is called jerk. So that's why you hear this word come up about, and it's, I mean, it's literally, it feels, you know, like when acceleration suddenly changes human beings in cars, they find jerk, particularly objectionable when they get certain you know, above a certain uh, level. Incidentally, the next three derivatives are called snap, crackle and pop. <laughs> and those are the real names. <laughs> so um, yeah, so comfort is a is a big deal. And they're focusing a lot on it right now. Cool.
0: All right, if there's any other questions, we'll move on.
4: So then, there was the the next slide that that he showed us was the this the occlusion slide, which if we back up just a little bit, this thing, uh, and I don't know, it's it, it's a little unfortunate that we're going at one point five for the people with the difficult accents because we're probably losing some stuff there, and I missed this the first time around, but he's giving an explanation of how um, essentially when you have occlusions, the car still has to plan for the possibility of what they might not be seeing. And they're doing that with this thing they call ghost objects. And if you look in this uh, photo, you can see that, you know, the, the, the ego car that the red car is stopped in an intersection and it wants to pull out or it's considering t- turning left, but there might be a car coming that it can't see. And the way that they model this is they have these imaginary cars, that, that that sort of fill in like where there might be a car and they call those ghost objects. And they actually insert them as occluded objects so that you can plan around them. And they're that, that you can see these, uh, this whole uh, a bunch of gray cars coming down the road that it, in the part of the road that it can't see that that's blocked. Did you catch yeah, that?
2: So, so James, on, on mm-hmm. that point though, like th- those cars were not there to my knowledge, right? So is that just for conservatism? Right. You're just assuming at the edge of yeah. your visibility, right. you wanna make sure, okay.
4: Yeah, so the thing is, you you it's like how fast my like, what's my worst case scenario, and you stick some some ghost cards in there. So if I play this video forward, what you will see is, as the car that's blocking the view moves past and the car becomes and the ego car is able to see down the road, you know, the ghost cards get eliminated as soon as the car knows they're not there. So let's just play that forward. And you can watch it. It
6: basically gets blocked at the first occlusion you see in the scene. We consume this visibility mask to generate what we call as ghost objects, which you can see on the top left. See
4: how now, they if disappear. Now, model the regions and and the, the state of ghost objects, because once it knows that a road is empty, it knows the, the of the detection likelihood. it, it, some really nice it like it, it, it will operate as now if it's might. I would
6: to build to describe more on how we generate these occupancy networks. Mm. Thank you.
4: So it's essentially a hack for getting the car to imagine. I will share the details of the occupancy network we built over
7: the past year. This network is our solution to model the physical work in 3D around our cars. And it is currently not shown in our customer-facing visualization. And what you will see here is the raw network output from our internal dev tool. The occupancy network takes video streams of all our eight cameras as input, produces a single unified volumetric occupancy in vector space directly. For every 3D location around our car, it predicts the probability of that location being occupied or not. Since it has video context, it is capable of predicting obstacles that are occluded instantaneously. For each location, it also produces a set of semantics, such as curb, car, pedestrian, and road debris, as color-coded here. Occupancy flow is also predicted for motion. Since the model is a generalized network, it does not tell static and dynamic objects explicitly. It is able to produce and model the random motion, such as a swerving trainer here. This network is currently running in all Teslas with FSD computers. And it is incredibly efficient, runs about every 10 milliseconds with our neural net accelerator. So how does this work? Let's take a look at the uh, architecture. First, we rectify each camera images with a camera calibration. And the images we're showing here uh, were given to the network. It's actually not the typical 8-bit RGB image. As you can see from the first uh, image on top, we're giving the 12-bit raw photo count image to the network. Since it has four bits more information, it has 16 times better dynamic range, as well as reduced latency, since we don't have to run ISP in the loop anymore. We use a set of and as a backbone to extract image space features. Next, we Construct a set of 3D position query along with the image space features as keys and values fit into an attention module. The output of the attention module is high dimensional spatial features. These spatial features are aligned temporarily using vehicle odometry to derive motion. Last, these spatial temporal features go through a set of deconvolution to produce the final occupancy and occupancy flow output. They are formed as fixed size voxel grid, which might not be precise enough for pre- planning and control. In order to get a higher resolution, we also produce per feature maps, which we feed into MLP with 3D spatial point queries to get position and semantics at any arbitrary location. After knowing the model better, let's take a look at another example. Here we have an articulated bus parked on the right side of the road, highlighted as an L-shaped bus here. As we approach, the bus starts to move. The blue, uh, the front of the cart turns blue first, indicating the model predicts the front of the bus has a non 0 occupancy flow. And as the bus keeps moving, the entire bus uh, turns blue. And you can also see that the network predicts the precise curvature of the bus. But well, this is a very complicated uh, problem for a traditional object detection network. As you have to see whether I'm going to use one cuboid or perhaps two to fit in the curvature. But for occupancy network, since all we care about is the occupancy in the visible space, and uh, we'll be able to uh, model the curvature precisely. Besides the box of gray, the occupancy network also produces a drivable surface. The drivable surface has both 3D geometry and semantics. They're very useful for control, especially on hilly and curvy roads. The surface and the voxel grid are not predicted independently. Instead, the voxel grid actually aligns with the surface implicitly. Here, we are at a hill quest where you can see uh, the 3D geometry of the surface being, being predicted nicely. Planner can use this information to decide perhaps we need to slow down more for the hill quest. And as you can also see, the voxel grid aligns with the surface consistently. Besides the voxels and the surface, we're also very excited about the recent breakthrough in neural radiance field or LERF. We're looking to both incorporate some of the nice nerve features into occupancy network training as well as using our network output as an input state for NERF. As a matter of fact, Ashok is very excited about this. This has been his uh, personal weekend project for a while.
5: Oh, uh, these uh, NERFs, because I think you know, the academia is building a lot of these foundation models uh, for language using like, tons of large uh, data sets for language. But I think for vision, uh, NERFs are going to provide the foundation models uh, for computer vision because uh, they are grounded in geometry, and geometry gives us a nice way to supervise these networks and freezes off the requirement to define an ontology and the supervision is essentially free because you just have to differentially render these images. So I think in the future, uh, this occupancy network idea, where you know images come in and then the network produces a consistent um, volumetric representation of the scene that can then be differentially rendered into any image that was observed, I, I personally think is a uh, future of computer vision, uh, and you know, we, do, we do some initial work on it uh, right now. But I think in the future, both at Tesla and in academia, uh, we will see that this combination of one-shot uh, prediction of volumetric occupancy uh, will be the future. So that's my personal uh, bet. Thanks for show. Sure. So here's an example early result of a 3D reconstruction
7: from our fleet data. Instead of focusing on getting perfect RGB reprojection in image space, our primary goal here is to accurately represent the world in 3D space for driving. And we want to do this for all our fleet data over the world, in all weather and lighting conditions. And obviously, this is a very challenging problem, and we're looking for you guys to help. Finally, the occupancy network is trained with large outer-labeled data set, without any human in the loop.
4: Maybe this could spot the... And this is pretty dense.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I got a lot Maybe. of questions.
4: <laughs> okay
3: uh so just going back for a second to what we're talking about earlier no no, it's fine just just with the occlusions so Mm -hmm. i understand with the ghost vehicles and everything but isn't there a certain amount of call it spatial memory that the neural nets or the fsd should have so where okay one vehicle in front of you so shouldn't that mitigate the need for those ghost vehicles like i understand a long blind spot but mm-hmm. I thought there had to be at least enough time to persist through a red light and understanding that you're still in a only left turn lane. Yeah, I think, I think uh,
4: you're, maybe the, the concept of the ghost thing isn't coming through very well. So imagine, you know, you're sitting at the, at the intersection and the car is waiting for its path to be clear so that it can do its left turn. Like it has a right of way, it's a stop sign. And the, you know, but a car comes and it blocks your view of oncoming traffic. Well, so the car, there were no cars coming before the view got blocked, right? And the car has memory. It, it, it's got exactly the memory that you were talking about. But what it remembers is there are no cars coming, right? So while the view is blocked, what prevents the car from deciding to go? Well, it hasn't seen a car coming. It doesn't know there's a problem. And this is a challenge because there might, we, know, we as humans know that just because I can't see up the road, there might be a car coming. So how do I, inside the framework that they've built so far, how do I get the car to, con- to not pull out when it doesn't know there isn't a car coming, right? Mm. Because it's kind of the occupancy network, by, or uh, not the occupancy network, this, this occlusion situation. It by default, it assumes there's nothing there if it didn't remember something being there. And this, in this situation, you kind of want it to imagine there is something there until it knows there isn't something there. And so, what they're doing with the ghost cars is they're saying, assume there's something there if you don't know that there isn't, because otherwise it's not safe to proceed. So, the ghost car is just basically a way where the system that it's doing, it's using a trick. It's basically injecting these cars that exist until you know they don't exist.
3: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense.
1: Okay. It kind of reminds me of like if someone was to st- walk behind you, you might think they're standing behind you. You don't want to step backwards and step on their feet unless you turned around and saw them actually there. I don't know.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it, uh, you, there are situations where you do move in the absence of knowledge that you can't. And there are situations where you don't move until you have knowledge that it's okay to do that. And so in the prior situation, occlusion doesn't present a problem because by default you just assume there's nothing there if you don't see something there. But there are situations where you want to assume there is something there until you know that there isn't something there. And the way that they're doing that inside the system is just basically giving it an imagination like having dropping in these ghost vehicles that don't really exist but it will treat like real vehicles until it knows they don't actually exist
0: got it um james i'm wondering if you could go back to let's go back to this um diagram here and um i know we could spend a long time on each step but um what could you ex- try to pare this down as if explaining to an eight-year-old with no jargon just kind of the simple concepts of what tesla is doing in each step right to get these volume kind of volumetric output of the scene
4: um let's see on the left are what the cameras see and then they basically told us that what they get out of the cameras goes straight into a neural network now. They used to have uh, an, an ISP, an image signal processor, but basically what came out of the camera, it would go through this compression thing that would also say color correct. And it would it would do a bunch of adjustments that, 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 uh, that are commonly wanted. And for a long time, they used the, the ISP uh, to pre-process the signals coming in. But at some point they discovered that the information the ISP was throwing away, they could actually make use of. So they got rid of it. And now they just take, this is the raw, you know, driving on uh, photon count, whatever stuff. They take the signal straight from the camera, uh, and they feed it. in. he spent a little bit of time talking about how the color space of the camera is different. It's not like the human eye color space. You can see it's got, it has two, it looks like there's a red and a blue and two greens. Actually, the two greens are clear. They only look green because your eye is contrasting them with the red and blue. There's a red filter, a blue filter, and the other two are clear. Um, so uh, it you, you know uh, the the car sees different colors than humans do, and they picked this color palette because they think it makes it's a better match for like the colors the car needs to see well in order to in order to do its driving. So anyway, those those go straight into a set of pretty generic uh, image neural networks. Um, uh, when they come out of that, they go through the the third block they're calling spatial attention, which is basically this function where, uh, you, uh, you want, uh, in order to interpret things in certain parts of certain images, you want to uh, there are other parts of other images are especially important. For instance, say you have two cameras, and uh and you know you have there's a truck next to you and the back part of it is seen by one camera and the front part of it is seen by a different camera so in that situation in order to for one camera to interpret the front part of the truck and understand what's going on it might want to refer to with priority to what another camera is the camera the other camera that sees the back part of the truck so spatial attention feature is a way for a neural network to basically decide what parts of what images are important to other parts of other images when it's, when it's understanding this. Um, so in temporal alignment, they talk about how you're essentially, uh, because we're taking video in, um, we, we see a sequence of images and if the car is moving, then each image that it sees is taken from a slightly different position. So if you want to understand the, for instance, say you're driving past, um, a fire hydrant or a pedestrian standing at the side of the road in the, in the first frame of a video, you see the pedestrian at one position. And in the next frame, the pedestrians at a different position relative to you. So they do an operation where they take all of the frames and they correct the positions in the frame for how far the car has moved so that in all of the succession of frames, even though the pedestrian appears at a different point in each successive frame, they know it's the same pedestrian because it's moving backwards at exactly the speed the car is moving forwards. So that's what the temporal alignment is. And of course they have to do this on curves too. If you're turning, if you're, if you're making a left turn at an intersection, the cameras that see say oncoming cars or cars at the side, those cars relative to your car moving because your car is rotating is, it goes so this temporal alignment is basically taking the position of the car and correcting for it with with respect to its view of all the other objects so that you see the same car at the stoplight again and again and again in each successive thing and the because you're seeing the car multiple times that increases the neural network's confidence that that there is a car there (laughs) which might sound kind of weird but human brains actually do this too the longer you see something the more confident you are that it's real and so the neural network is essentially doing this. And in order to do that, when the car is moving, it has to correct for the movement of the car to understand, you know, how the other car is moving relative to the ground, not just relative to you. Um. Okay. So uh, the deconvolution thing. Um, so the neural network that that is basically integrating all these cameras and producing kind of this volumetric map. It does this very very crudely, and it has to because it has to do it really fast. If you have, you know millions, if you had millions of, of uh, individual pixels that you had to sort of individually consider for all of these things, it takes a lot longer. So the neural network can do a trick where um, it makes the image really coarse, but more meaningful at each uh, position. So for instance, the images come in at 1280 by 960. So you have basically, you know, a million pixels coming in from a camera. And as a neural network processes them, instead it breaks the image down into like grids that are blocks of pixels. And it makes up for itself kind of uh, an understanding of what is in this square of this image and what is in the next square of the next image. So instead of just having a pixel, a couple of pixels with some colors, instead you're like, oh, this might be a human head. And on the one below it, this might be a human torso. And, And so, You get this sort of semantic meaning, but uh, but you you have fewer blocks, but the information you get from each block is richer. And as you work your way through the neural network, you have fewer and fewer blocks with more and more information. And sort of this ends up making it so that you can pass the meaning of the image more quickly through the neural network because you're not trying to maintain the resolution. You're as you get to these higher level concepts about what different parts of the image contain, you reduce the number of you know, grid cells as you will. Well, when they get to the top of this, that's when they combine the images from all these different cameras together with the spatial attention and whatnot. So then the output of that gives you like your little 3D map of the world and your understanding about you know where are the cars and where are the curb lines, but it's super crude. It's because now at this point you've reduced it to like all the, the everything looks like Legos. It's these big squares. But embedded in each one of those Legos is a lot of information about you know, what is in that cell. So you can do a thing called deconvolution, where once you've done that and you've corrected all this stuff and you've integrated it in a way that's computationally efficient for the system. Now, if you want to make a fine say, say for instance, now you need to make some decisions that require finer resolution than the, than the block size that you're at. What deconvolutions do is they take each of those little blocks. And they say, based on this, based on what I see in this block and what's in the block above it, below it and whatnot, the overall thing, there must be say a pedestrian at this position crossing these three blocks. So what that deconvolution does is it lets you move back to a high resolution understanding of the world. And it may seem counterintuitive that this is actually faster than trying to calculate at high resolution, but it's because... Resolution in a volumetric thing, the computation, it goes as the cube of the resolution that you're doing. So, like, you know, if I have a box and I divide it into by, you know, a thousand by a thousand by a thousand, now I have a billion points inside this box that I have to compute through when I want to do something. If I reduce that by a factor of 10, so I have a hundred by a hundred by a hundred, now I only have what, 10,000 or is it a million? It's a million. So now I have a million points instead of a billion points. It's a thousand times faster to do this part. So what they find is that essentially reducing the resolution, making all your decisions. And then if you need some high resolution data you deconvolve to get back up to that. So that's the process that they're describing here. And then the output from this deconvolution is those volumetric maps where you know the, the things that we're seeing with the hill with all the little colored blocks along the side and whatnot, like that's the direct output. And one of the things that they get out of that is a neural network also predicts the road surface smoothly. Like what, is, like, am I on a hill? Is it sloping down? Is there a bump? Is there a speed bump? Is there a dip that I need to slow for? Like it should see all of all of those things, right? Got it. So, And then the last block on the right is once again, so now I've got all my, you know, I've got my voxel sort of my crude Lego land kind of view of the world but I need to turn that back into is this a bus and is it moving or is it parked or whatnot? So they have another set of networks they're called, I mean, they have them labeled MLP here that essentially takes that volumetric stuff and it turns that into some kind of more actionable data that could be uh, where a, some human written code on the back end of this could make a decision like here is a lane line, there is a pedestrian, here is a car and so forth. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. Does it generate any questions?
0: Um, actually, I want to have one more question here. This nerve state. So um, my understanding is, you know, these nerves are growing in interest with academia right now, um, especially the possibility of taking 2D images or video and and outputting these 3D um, uh objects or environments. Um, So this NERF state, it seems like it's still experimental. Um, Is that right? And then also, um, let's take a look at the video of... They show a little bit of the NERF state, it seems like, in one of these video clips here. I guess here, NERFs from the Fleet Dense 3D Reconstruction Using Volumetric Rendering. So I'm guessing they're taking their volume maps and renderings and inputting this into these nerfs that they're experimenting with, and um, is this picture right here? Is this actually the nerfs? Right, the video, the it's, so on the this right? is the
4: output. So a nerf is a neural radiance field. What a what a nerf does is it basically says uh, it predicts what you would what it would look like if you were looking at a particular thing from a particular angle. So the radiance field is the it's it's the. It's like the the light radiating off the surface. That's the radiant field. So uh, so essentially, what a nerf is doing is it's is it's is it's a it's a neural network where you can where you can ask the neural network what would this look like from this angle and this position, and it gives you a picture out like this is what it would look like. So the nerfs they're using right here, you know that. So previously we saw the. You know the diagrams with all the little lego blocks at the side of the road and the road going down and the car driving well those that lego block stuff that's the output of the volumetric map so what the nerf is doing for them now each of those little blocks that we see in that the way they're showing it to us is this just a colored block that's like blue or orange or red or whatnot but actually inside each one of those blocks is a lot of semantic information in that little in that picture where they're showing us the blocks all they're doing is they're showing us blocks where something is as opposed to nothing being, but they're not really showing in that, in that image, they're not showing us what's in there, but it turns out there's enough information inside that block that you can do a trick where you take those, you take a collection of those blocks and you hand them to an algorithm that converts them into a Nerf. Then what you can do is you can say, what would this look like from a particular position? And you get a picture out and they're giving us an example of one of those pictures. So this picture here, This is what came out of a Nerf processing all those Lego blocks. So it turns it back into an image. So so at this point, you've got cameras that are being processed and integrated and whatnot, and they're resulting in this kind of volumetric understanding of the space around the car that can be used for making decisions. But one trick that you can do, there's enough information in all those little Lego blocks that you can turn them back into the picture if you want to. And that's what the Nerf is doing here.
0: Got it. So is the, actually, let's run this thing here. And
4: we want to do this for all our free data over the world, in all weather and lighting conditions. So
0: is the, the- nerf, the output, is the nerf the right hand in, uh, video there?
4: So the output of the nerf is, so the nerf is, the nerf generates a radiance field. Mm-hmm. And then what you can do is you can query the radiance field saying, given this radiance field, if I had a camera at this spot, what would it look like? So this is a single nerf. And what they're doing is they put a camera in one spot and they're sweeping it through the nerf and what the nerf produces is like it's almost like a panorama it's showing you what the camera what a camera at that position would see if it was looking around so they can build a nerf like you know they can uh they can have a car drive through a scene right and it can generate this volumetric representation inside that it's using to drive but if they want to they can also take that volumetric representation and they can turn it back into what it would look like
0: got it so th- let's look at this one more time. So- why, why is um what's this building on the left that it's they're just,
4: showing? It's just it's an example of like there's a building in we're uh, uh, It's got okay. nothing to do with this picture. Got it. It's very confusing. They've used it three times now.
0: <laughs> okay, so this is actually the nerf. Interesting. Okay, um, and, and then does this have anything to do with the the previous nerf?
4: So this now uh, they're moving on to uh, talking to about me. how they train all this stuff with uh, the labeled okay. dataset.
0: Okay, got it. All right, so um. If Tesla is able to do more of this, so take their occupancy maps network to help and input it into these nerfs to get, let's say these, you know, potential, I guess, I mean, 3D renderings, but, you know, more of, um, yeah, 3D images in a way or environments, then what what is the benefit? How can they use that to improve FSD? That's what kind of improvements can you, can
4: you see? <laughs> because it's, uh, it, they, it, they, it's very vague when they talk about using, ner- I, part of the reason they're bringing Nerfs up is because Nerfs are very sexy, right? Nerfs, it's a really interesting technology. It is kind of new. A lot of people are working on them. And, uh, and so there's, uh, you can do some interesting sort of, I'm gonna call them ancillary things with them. It's ancillary right now, ancillary ancillary, an, ancillary things. Um, so one of the things that you can do is say you've, 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 uh, you've driven through your scene and your car's generated this volumetric representation, but you want to make a simulation for some reason, right? So nerfs can be a way to basically take the volumetric rendering and, and help import it into your simulator. So that's one thing that you can get from nerfs. Another thing that you can get from NERFs, and this is something we talked about before, and this is what Ashok talks about when he comes up at the end and they pause on the nerf things and he comes up on stage and says, yeah, you know, in my opinion, this is a really important development in the space. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the way that we're going to get to foundational models. Now in uh in the neural network world, there's neural networks that you train to do one particular job. Foundational models are a neural network that you can train that has general capabilities that you can use for lots of different jobs. For instance, these big, these large language models, you can train one big large language model, and then you can use it for, like, you can use it as part of Dolly for making images, or you can use it in a translation system. You can use it for sentiment analysis because a large language model it's kind of a model of language and once you have a model of how language works you can use it a lot of different ways so the idea with a foundational model is you is you you it's worth putting a ton of resources into training a model that has some that has some very useful but very general purpose capability and then you can use it for other things so Ashok is basically saying how do we get foundational models for this like they've they've totally revolutionized other parts of 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 uh, neural network technology today but there aren't good foundation model approaches for what tesla is doing right now and ashok is basically saying i think nerfs could be one of the ways that we get to foundational models, where we take a model, we train it on tons and tons of data, and now we have this generally useful model, and we can basically take that and drop it in a car, drop it in a robot, uh, drop it in a different car, drop it in a truck, but, you know, make a make a red light camera that can understand the environment and be smarter than just running on a timer, you know, it's. You could have all of these different applications if you could build that foundation model. But right now we just don't know how to build generally capable models with spatial understanding of the world. So Ashok is basically saying here, well, if we can go, what Tesla can do today is they can go from pictures to a spatial understanding with some fidelity. If they can go from that spatial understanding back to pictures, that gives you the ability to to train a foundation model by just having lots and lots of pictures because you can put a picture you can put a set of pictures in go go you know go through to the spatial understanding and then go back to the pictures and you have a really simple way to train the network because you can just say did the picture i put in does it equal the picture that came out that's a very simple training thing you don't have to label tons of data you don't need you know it, it eliminates all all kinds of intermediate complexity if you can get to that and it gives you this powerful a model potentially that you could train to be generally capable in this space. So it's a, it's an aspirational statement. And it, if they were able to do it, you know, that would be great. It would make a big difference to the whole field. If, uh, if they could do it, mostly Tesla doesn't do research. Mostly, most of what Tesla does is they look at research and novel techniques that other people have come up with and they adapt them. They do a lot of engineering on it. They refine them, they apply them to their problem. But mostly, they're not doing this foundational stuff. And this is kind of an an example of something like if if ashooka actually figures out how to do this and Tesla does it, it will be a novel uh, scientific contribution. Interesting. All right.
0: Any other questions to be have?
2: Uh, yeah, I've got one actually, James, if you don't mind. Um so it, it seems like when you're talking about like the the deconvolutions and uh, it's, it's it's almost like you've got a problem with having too many pixels. Um, and there's there's sort of a trade-off there. So, um, I think one of the things a lot of people were expecting was hardware 4 to be introduced. Obviously that didn't happen, but I think it, it, it at some point it will and presumably it would have a higher you know resolution higher you know pixel count at that point. So I guess just a general question how are you thinking about the trade-offs between uh, the benefits of higher pixel, which I would presume you could just see with with more clarity further objects that are you know uh, you know smaller uh, pixel size right now um, compared to like the problem of having to, uh, rough those those images down, and, and any you know resources that that might consume from uh, you know from the onboard computer. So, how, how do you think about that problem generally?
4: Yeah. So the the thing I was talking about before, the pixels in question were like when you get to these Lego blocks in that representation. How big are the Lego blocks, um, and how big are the Lego blocks that get produced at when you integrate all the cameras together? So, incidentally, the the, the neural networks take that take that 1280 by nine sixty image. And by the time they're combining them together, they're like um, 40 by 60, like they're super giant clunky, you know, pixels, but where each pixel has all kinds of semantic information, not just the color. So when I was talking about wanting to operate at low resolution, that's that 40 by 60 resolution. So as I understand your question, you're asking about what if I have a higher resolution camera? Like how does that affect all the stuff that's going on here? And happily, like if you really wanted to try to make maximum utility of all of that resolution, um, it would require that you ch- that you change the uh, the front end of the pipeline and make it significantly wider because it's got to take a you know a five megapixel camera instead of a one pic- megapixel. That's a lot of extra pixels to ingest. Um, to a first approximation, like if you just you know if you just increase the size of the neural network you know five x at the input and all the way through to maintain exactly the same fide- fidelity. Well, now all of a sudden you'd need five times as much compute for this, mm-hmm. they won't do that. Um, there are ways that you can try to get, um, that you can try to get most of the benefit without, because the thing is, you know, I have my field of view and it has a certain amount of stuff in it, even though whether my camera is one megapixel or five megapixel, I, it doesn't mean, you know, I don't go from one pedestrian to five, right? There's not, I'm not looking at five times as much stuff. So that, So in a sense, the neural network it doesn't need to know more stuff overall so the ba- the back end of the neural network what comes out is going to be more or less the same if you're going to need it's going to need to be big enough to tell you about how many you know signs there are how many cars there are how many pedestrians there are um, what the extra resolution does is it lets you have higher confidence in what you're seeing for smaller objects lower down in the pipeline. So it will add to the compute burden of the system, but it won't be anywhere near linear. Unfortunately, those early stages where you're bringing in all those pixels, they're pretty heavy, they're pretty compute intensive. So the early stages are probably like 20% or 30% of the overall compute budget for the networks. And that 10 or 20%, that could go up by five times. So so for instance, just going to higher cameras, if you sort of brute forced, it might double the amount of compute you need to get the same results. And you might not get anything for it, right? Because they're only very, particular situations where that, where that extra resolution is really benefiting you. And, and yet you'd be paying twice as much in terms of compute for it all the time. So we can expect that they'll probably come up with novel ways to try to minimize the, the impact of those higher resolution cameras.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like there's not a, a real immediate benefit right now that, that you would see from, from increasing the pixel count cause you, you're not there's not a whole lot of situations, like you said, where it presumably it would have to be like very high moving cross traffic or very you know, fast moving cross traffic where you'd need to see something within say, I don't know, two or three seconds. And, and the existing cameras can already basically do that, right? Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah.
4: There, there are kind of two situations where the higher resolution really helps you. One of them is where you have a very small movement of something, which is not so far away and you need, you want to know precisely what that movement is like. So the finer resolution let, gives you a kind of a finer understanding of what that movement is. And the other, of course, is seeing small objects at a distance. So like, you know, if you're trying to cross um, a high speed road and you have to look way up the road and you see a car coming straight towards you, um, the only way that you can judge how fast it's coming is, you know, how fast does it get bigger? And when it's really mm-hmm. far away and not very many pixels, that could be hard to judge. So more pixels definitely helps you in that situation.
2: That's
3: helpful. Thanks. With regards to the Lego blocks as we're, ter- uh, calling it whenever say FSD beta is driving and that's what it's seeing, and understanding for its occupancy, occupancy network does it have the ability to unpack one of those Lego blocks and get more of the nuance and detail that's within that if it needs to?
4: Yes, it does. And, okay. then, and the way that there's different ways it can go about doing that. But the main way that they're doing it right now is they have these MLPs that take a bunch of Lego blocks in and then turn that into whatever you decide you want. So for instance, if you want to know, like exactly where, like the Lego blocks are so big, you might not know, like is this a twelve-inch curve or or, or a four-inch curb, and like you know, is it a foot away from me or is it four inches away from me? And so the Lego blocks could basically, you know, the the one of these uh, MLPs can take a bunch of those Lego blocks and it can say, here's exactly where the curb is, and this is what color it is, and this is how tall it is.
3: Gotcha. Okay. Good. That's awesome.
0: Right. That's um. Continue on, James. I think we we were planning to. What um, you said at the eighteen minute mark or so to it would be a good. Kind um, so of, we're so we're uh, one hour and
4: four, an hour and a half into our video, and uh, so we're doing better than we did yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Why
0: don't we go ahead and? Um, I think we we only have about four more minutes of this video until well well it's about almost. Well, close to half of the video. So we'll stop there and take kind of final questions and comments and all that stuff. So, yeah, why don't we um, continue on?
7: Data all over the world, in all weather and lighting conditions. And obviously, this is a very challenging problem, and we're looking for you guys to help. Finally, the occupancy network is trained with large outer-level data set without any human in the loop. And with that, I'll pass to Tim to talk about what it takes to train this network. Thanks, Bill.
8: All right, hey, everyone. Let's talk about some training infrastructure. Uh, so we've seen a couple videos, videos, you know, four or five. Uh, I think and care more and worry more about a lot more clips on that. So we've been looking at the occupancy networks just from Phil. Just Phil's videos. It takes 1.4 billion frames to train that network, what you just saw. And if you have 100,000 GPUs, uh, it would take one hour. But if you have uh, one GPU, it would take 100,000 hours. So that is not a humane time period that you can wait for your training job to run, right? We want to ship faster than that. So that means you're going to need to go parallel. So you need uh, more compute for that. That means you're going to need a supercomputer. So this is why we've built in-house three supercomputers Comprising of 14,000 gpus where we use 10,000 gpus for training And run 4,000 uh, gpus for all labeling. All these videos are stored in 30 petabytes of a distributed Managed video cache. Um, you shouldn't think of our data sets uh, as fixed, let's say, As you think of your image net or something, you know, with Like a million frames. You should think of it as a very fluid thing. So we've got a half a million of these videos flowing in and Out of this cluster, these clusters every single day. And we track 400,000 of these kind of python video Instantiations every second. So, that is, that's a lot of calls. We are going to need to capture that in order to govern the retention policies of this distributed video cache. So, underlying all of this is a huge amount of infra, all of which we build and manage in house. So, you cannot just buy you know, 40,000 GPUs and then a 30 petabytes of flash NVMe and just put it together and let it go train. Uh, it actually takes a lot of work, and I'm going to go into a little bit of that. What you actually typically want to do is you want to take your accelerator, so that could be the GPU or dojo, which we'll talk about later. Um, and because that's the most expensive component, that's where You want to put your bottleneck. And so that means that every Single part of your system is going to need to outperform this Accelerator. And so that is really complicated. That means that your storage is going to need to have the size And the bandwidth to deliver all the data down into the nodes. These nodes need to have the right amount of cpu and memory Capabilities to feed into your machine learning framework. This machine learning framework then needs to hand it off to your gpu And then you can start training. But then you need to do so Across hundreds or thousands of gpu in a reliable way, in lockstep, and in a way that's also fast. So you're also going to need an Interconnect. Extremely complicated. We'll talk more about dojo in a second. So first, i want to take you through uh, some optimizations that We've done on our cluster. Uh, so we're getting in a lot of videos. And video is very much unlike, uh, let's say, training on images or Text, which i think is very well established. Video is quite literally a dimension more complicated. Um, and so uh, that's why we need to go end to end from the storage layer Down to the accelerator and optimize every single piece of That. Uh, because we train on the photon Count videos that come directly from our fleet. We train on those directly. We do not post-process those at all. The way it's just done is uh, we see exactly to the frames we select For our batch, we load those in, including the frames that they Depend on, so these are your i-frames, or your we package those up, move Them into shared memory, move them into a double buffer on the GPU, and then use a hardware decoder that's only accelerated um, To actually decode the video. So we do that on the gpu natively. And it's all in a very nice python uh, PyTorch extension. Uh, doing so unlocked more than 30% training speed increase for The occupancy networks and freed up basically the whole cpu to do any Other thing. You cannot just do training with just videos. Of course, you need some kind of ground truth. Uh, And uh, that's actually an interesting problem as well. The objective for storing a ground truth is that you want to make sure you get to the ground truth that you need in the minimal amount of file system operations and load in the minimal size of what you need in order to optimize for aggregate cross cluster throughput. Because you should see a compute cluster as one big device which has internally fixed constraints and thresholds. So, for this, we rolled out a format uh, that is native to us that's called Small. We use this for our ground truth, our feature cache, and any inference outputs. So, a lot of tensors that are in there. Uh, and so just a cartoon here, let's say these are your, uh, is your table That you want to store, then that's how that would look out If you rolled out on disk. So what you do is you take Anything you would want to index on, so, for example, video timestamps, you put those all in the header so that in your initial Header, you know exactly where to go on disk. And if you have any tensors, uh, you're going to try to Transpose the dimensions to put a different dimension last As a contiguous dimension and then also try different types Of compression. Then you check out which one Was most optimal and then store that one. This is actually a huge tip if you do feature caching, Unintelligible output from the machine learning network, uh, rotate Around the dimensions a little bit, you can get up to 20% Increase in efficiency of storage. Then, when you store that, uh, we also um, order in columns by size so that all your small columns and small values are together so that when you seek for a single value, you're likely to overlap with a read on more values, which you'll uh, use later so that you don't need to do another file system operation. So, I could go on and on. I just went on, uh, on, touched on two projects that we have internally. But this is actually part of a huge continuous effort to optimize the compute that we have in house. Uh, So accumulating and aggregating through all these optimizations, uh, we now train our occupancy networks twice as fast just because it's twice as efficient. And now if we add in a bunch more compute and go parallel, we can now train this in hours instead of days. And with that, I'd like to hand it off to the biggest user of compute, John.
4: So, uh, um, does this make sense? (laughs) Okay,
0: so, so, uh, yeah, I actually want to ask um, him about the... um... Uh, 500,000 rotating videos. So why are they rotating 500,000 videos?
4: Well, they only is have it... 30 petabytes of storage. Uh, that's, that's and,
0: probably, and what is it like, what, why, what is it being used for? You know, what's the necessity of this rotation? of? Videos? So
4: currently the training is done from clips that get taken from the car, like overwhelmingly. So, at, you know, the clip is the thing where you have a, a you, you have 10 seconds of Uh, the car uh, of a car out in the fleet capturing data where it captures all the video from all the cameras, plus all of the IMU data and, you know, context, you know, metadata that goes into that thing. And it makes what they call a video and they send it. And it's actually eight videos. At 36 frames per second, and it also has all this other data that goes with it. So those are that's what they're calling a video. And and this the, I find it surprising that they get 500,000 new ones every day. <laughs> so their data engine, they're they're constantly asking the fleet, hey, send me data about this thing, about some problem that we're having, and they're ingesting this data. And their data center is already basically full. They got 30 petabytes. So you know if you get 500,000 new videos, you got to get rid of 500,000 videos to make. To make space for it, so to a first approximation, that is what's going on. Uh-huh. But um, initially, that might say, "Oh man, you know, if only they had more storage." But the reality is, you can't train with all thirty petabytes. I mean, you might have a thirty-day petabyte cache, but realistically, um, you, uh, you know, I, I think you. You can only use so much of that data to train your neural network because it takes a really long time to train and you want to be able to train your neural network in like a week maybe a month or something like that you don't want to take a year so you can't just keep adding more and more video to train the thing so instead what you do is you curate the data set you're constantly looking at the data that you're using to train the neural network and figuring out what stuff is making the most difference and what stuff you could do without it's redundant or uh like you know you originally add it for for some problem that you had before that you're not really having so they're constantly recurating the data set taking the lower priority stuff and getting it out so the so the video cache stays about the same size but the quality goes up and up and up and get it gradually gets more and more relevant data does that make sense yeah
0: yeah that makes sense right. um
4: yeah so the, re- the the rest of the dialogue he was basically going through this whole list of all these tips and tricks that they do to squeeze more out. You know, they, they've got this, uh, they have this data center, they, they have uh, four, 72 racks that we learned in the dojo video. So a rack is like, it's about the size of a refrigerator, kind of a skinny refrigerator. And they have 72 of these that are just full of computers. And that's just the 4,000 node cluster that they use for auto labeling. And so they got another one that's two and a half times bigger than that. So they've got all of this hardware and you wanna make the best possible use of it. And Tesla is going through lots of tricks to try to squeeze more and more and more performance out of this. And a lot of it has to do with, in this case, he's mostly talking about like, how do we store data? And how do we cleverly store it? Like rearrange the data so that you don't, so uh, so that you do fewer actions with your database and for each interaction you do with it, you get more valuable stuff out of it. So by refining that, in many different ways that, that he listed, they were able to essentially double the performance of their of their cluster storage just by essentially rearranging the way that they store data.
0: Got it. Um, any other questions? Yeah. You guys have?
3: Yeah, just to run with that real quick. So, with the thirty petabytes of NVMe, it sounds like they have. Does that do those video clips get? flushed out regularly because once the neuronets have trained on it we don't really need it anymore because we've already have our influence on the neuronets based on those videos and so really we just want more new stuff from the fleet so we can use that to train further or how should we think about that like would they have to keep x amount of video clips from previous iterations that have trained the neuronets or is it just we go through it we've used it we've trained on it we don't need it anymore
4: um so they they're not going to throw away data that they need to generate the current state of the neural network because you always want to be able to regenerate what you're currently working with. What you can, but you know, as I mentioned before, of that 30 petabytes of video, I mean we could sit down and figure out how many clips it is. But my guess is it's probably somewhere on the order of, you know, 10 to 50 times more video than they can use to train that is when they it just realistically because they only have so long to train a neural network and because they can only put a, a neural network so big inside the car they can only they can probably only use a few percent of that for the training for the main neural network that goes in so the challenge is is more they have a really big library of stuff that they've worked with and when they do a training run they just want to pick you know the you know the one percent or the five percent of everything that they have which gonna which is gonna give them the best results now uh, the thing is they get so much data from the field that they they can fill their whole database up and to the point where when they get new stuff they have to throw old stuff away so and there are lots of criteria you might use for throwing stuff away um, it might be that you you know um, you collected a whole bunch of clips for some, for some uh, problem that you were working on and you ended up using 10% of them and now you can throw the rest of them away. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is probably that kind of stuff. Some of it will obsolete. Some of it will be stuff that was captured and didn't turn out to be useful. And a lot of it will also be, um, as, you know, the more they work with the data set and the more experience they get with the, with the network, the more they will have a a good understanding of what particular videos are contributing to good results and which ones aren't. And you can just take the bad, you know, those out. There are a bunch of studies that show that when you, a lot, you know, probably most of the neural networks out there, you could get rid of half of the data that's being used to train them or two thirds, if you knew which data you could get rid of. It's like half my data is useful, I just don't know which half. And is the more you work with it, the more you know which half isn't useful and you throw that stuff away because it's just taking compute and not giving you good results.
3: Gotcha. Yeah. And then my last question, uh, just a full circle to to what we were talking about yesterday. So we see these NVMe clusters. How does that, how would that interface with Dojo? Like if that's your storage medium where you're holding your volume of, of data, how are we interfacing that into Dojo when again, like, I mean, based on what I saw, the only thing we had was that Ethernet port. So, I mean, how how are we thinking of that? Or is the DRAM supposed to be that, that storage for Dojo and somehow we just bring it in?
4: Yeah, I mean it's so you. I mean you're going to have a storage cluster. Some sometimes you NVMe is stored in the hosts in your cluster directly, and so it's distributed. It's more yeah. common to essentially have another set of racks that are mainly lots of NVMe plus some hosts to dump it into some network that your cluster can draw from, and that's how yeah. it would work for Dojo. You'd have you'd have your NVMe flash storage cluster someplace that would be storing all of your video. When you're running a when you want to run a Dojo job to train a neural network on that. That, that job would basically say like, here's the neural network code um, uh, and here's the data I wanna train on. And so when that job gets loaded into Dojo, the code will get preloaded into the DRAM on those PCI mm-hmm. cards that, that sit you know on top of the hosts, but underneath the tiles. So all that stuff gets preloaded in there. And then once you've collected it all together, then it, it gets dumped in and there's enough capacity there Because Dojo is going to run continuously. It'll have lots of little jobs switching on and off all the time. And so there will be the scheduler that basically queues up the jobs according to which ones can run at at a time. And then, you know, essentially you schedule your data to come from your your NVMe cluster all this stuff gets preloaded and then when the once a tile frees up from the previous job you've already got the data ready to load the code ready to load to get running and then as it gets running your examples get pulled out of you know uh, as we mentioned yesterday the shards get pulled out and they get fed in uh, as they get consumed by dojo in the training process does that okay. make sense okay i think so <laughs> yeah, so it'll, it's it'll be a separate cluster, and you'll access it across a network, yeah. and it will be that Ethernet network. So, yeah.
0: all right, um, how about we do this? Um, let's wrap up, and um, I, I'm curious to hear your guys' as kind of key takeaway um, from just today. Was there anything that stuck out as interesting or important, or? Any kind of implications or ramifications you guys are seeing from some of the things that you know? We didn't answer today.
4: Matt's question. Actually, I thought we would get to it. And <laughs>
0: didn't. Um, okay, why don't you go for it? What was that Matt's question?
2: Yeah, so it was it was basically um, Tesla was talking, you know, six twelve months ago about you know using kind of forty video instead of the uh, the from all cameras simultaneously instead of kind of like the static image based. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I wasn't sure um, if they'd actually had made that transition and and you know to what like to what extent is is that helping the occupancy network? to me, it's just very hard to kind of delineate where these different systems are, you know, whether they're in training or or whether they're in the the kind of inference within the car.
4: Yeah, so the short answer is yeah, it's they've made they've completely, as far as we can tell right now, they've made the transition. So they started from using static images on individual cameras. Uh, and it and they they have proceeded to using video from all eight cameras together synchronized as as their training data and the way that that gets done right now is we mentioned these clips that get captured from the car they go through an auto labeler that generates ground truth by essentially it can take a clip of data and it can run backwards and through and forwards through this clip of data um, and. Essentially figure out what the ground truth must have been around the car based on based on going back and forth through all the cameras that viewed this scene as the car was driving through it. So, uh, so it generates kind of this um, This 3D representation of the scene that the car must have been transitioning when this recording occurred. Then what the auto labeler does is it, uh, once it builds this 3d ground truth thing, it, there's a neural network built into the auto labeler that goes through and labels everything in that scene at a high resolution. This is a much more precise neural network than the run, one that runs in the car. It's much bigger. It's got a lot more data to work with, and it, it has made a data that the car doesn't have on the fly. So it labels all the stuff that's in su- that, that, that. That's inside here. The output of the auto labeler is labeled data. So you get raw data in that just comes from the car. Feed it into the auto labeler. The, lab, the auto labeler applies all the labels. So it basically figures out like you know everything that the car might sub- subsequently want to query. You know um, you know where are the pedestrians? Which way are they facing? Are they walking or not? All of the lane markings, all of the signs, everything that's that's potentially relevant. The auto labeler will label that, attach that information to the video. And then it it will go into that video cache with all the labels and whatnot. So that when Dojo trains on it, it'll pull those samples out and it'll have the labels, which is the output it wants to generate. And it'll have the input data, which is the video that got captured by the car. So, and and now um, for quite a while, they started out just using static images to do all their training because most of their labeling was happening like in camera frame. And then as they made this transition to sort of having the system build a 3d understanding of the environment from all the cameras working together including across time because now it's video uh once they transition to that then what happens is they have to change the code in the car so now it uses that 3d model instead of the 2d stuff that they were getting from the cameras before and that took a while because the car has a lot of functions it's got like 100 different tasks that run, and the different tasks have to depend on different data. So I had to gradually transition all of those off of the 2D stuff onto the 3D stuff, and then when, once they got there, then they're just pure 3D auto-labeled clips. Um, and I think what we saw from last AI day to this AI day is somewhere in between, they completed that transition. And now they're really focused on, they capture all their data as clips. They run it all through the auto labeler and pretty much everything that runs in the car now is getting trained from that data.
2: It, it, it strikes me that that's a pretty massive undertaking that, that they, you know, accomplished in the last, you know, year or yeah. so. Is that part of the reason that we're seeing you know the the huge kind of, increase in in frequency of FSD updates as they they had this kind of massive architectural change that they've, they've flowed through. And so now it's a lot of like improving of the neural nets, but not rewriting the entire, you know, kind of bones of of the software. Is that, is that a fair kind of assessment?
4: There was certainly going to be a period of time where, as they were making all of these changes, they couldn't do other stuff and maybe they weren't doing as many. I mean, what drives the update frequency to the car can be small things. Um, like you can have a problem which you're struggling with, but it doesn't actually take a lot of resources. It just takes a lot of experimentation, pushing stuff out to the fleet. So that might, but you know, so we see, uh, we see the update frequency increase. We see it decrease. Um, frequently, I think it's the case that, that when we're seeing a big pause, it's because they are doing some significant sort of, you know changes to the infrastructure of the program as a whole. And this thing that we're talking about was an enormous infrastructure change that occurred over the last year.
0: Uh, James, with what you just mentioned about the process of taking, so you get these eight videos synced, you get first the ground truth, and then you go through higher resolution labeling, you get labeled data out. Uh, Do you go through an occupancy network as well? before that labels, before it gets labeled, so you can get better kind of accuracy on the labels or where does that come in?
4: Yeah, so the, so the auto-labeler, so re- remember what the, what the network in the car is doing is it's taking, to a first approximation, it does many things, but one thing that we're talking about right here is it takes camera images in and then it makes this occupancy map of the environment with all these Legos that have all this data in them about what's inside that box. So the auto labeler has to generate that data. So like the, the auto labeler, basically it takes those images from the car and then it, it figures out like, what should that Lego block be? <laughs> for this, for this scene that I'm seeing. So internally to the auto label, like it builds that, you know, it runs the stuff back and forward to figure out what the ground truth is. And then based on that ground truth, it says what the auto, what the car should say that le- what, what, its occupancy map should contain is this, this is the answer. I want it to produce when it sees these clips. So that goes into the training database as training data. And when dojo, you know, or sorry, when, when the network is getting trained, whether it's on Dojo or the cluster, what will, what will happen is those video frames will get presented to the network in training while it's being trained and it will cough up an output. Like, hey, here, mom, this is what I think the answer is. And then uh, the training system, it'll have the the right answer which is what the auto labeler came up with this much more powerful, much more well-informed network that runs in, in the cluster. And everything that was wrong about the, tr- the network in training's answer will get fed back as a correction factor to all the weights. So then it'll adjust all its weights. So the next time it sees that clip, its answer is more right than it was. And if you run enough clips through, what happens is most of the ne- most of the labels will be most right most of the time. But the auto-labeler is creating the reference standard for training.
0: Got it. So, I mean, from what I'm hearing is this auto labeling process, <clears throat> it's training the occupancy
4: networks for the, the the neural nets as well, right? Yeah, it's creating the, it's giving you a list of, for this in, input, you should get this output. And the output is an occupancy network. For For a neural network that produces an occupancy map, the correct output example, which is in the database associated with that video, is the occupancy network output. Mm, got it.
0: Cool. All right, guys. Um, why don't we go ahead and um, uh, just to kind of wrap up sharing any key insights, takeaways. What are you guys going to take from this uh, session here Th- today? We actually only um, were able to take half of um, cover half of the FSD section for a uh, Tesla AI Day. Hopefully, we can do part two. Um, but yeah, um, let's start with Nicholas. What What are your kind of takeaways from from today?
3: Um. Yeah, a lot. Um, there's just so much going on there uh, with Tesla. It just, it's, I mean, especially as an investor, it just makes you feel really confident when you're listening to these people and you're seeing what they're doing and, and just, you know, James is trying to dumb it down for some of us. And it's, even then it's still just so profound and the way they're thinking about it and the ideas they're coming up with, it's just, I don't know. I, I really don't know what my takeaways other than just, wow. And this is kind of crazy, heavy stuff. And, you know, Hopefully, as time goes by, I can understand it more. But like I can tell at the very least that it's important and they're doing some real impressive things. And it's crazy that I can test this out in, in real time. Like, it's just wild.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, Kristen, how about you?
1: Um, it's hard. As I'm going through this, it's hard not to think about uh, the Optimus robot and how this system is something that I feel that they're perfecting and I know there'll be diff- different variables but they'll be able to replicate with the robot and just to see how they're using it. it. It's exciting like to see and I think it's great that they're actually moving on to a robot besides just using the Tesla vehicle itself. It just makes sense when James is sharing all this and and just understanding the human mind and the way that it files things away and trims like the neurons at night and different things like that. It's, it's fascinating, I love it all. So it was good. Awesome.
0: <laughs> good, good. And um, Matt, how about you?
2: Yeah, I think probably my biggest takeaway is just how fluid this whole process is. I mean, I guess I didn't take or I didn't appreciate how frequently they're kind of running into roadblocks or, you know, things that, uh, create kind of local optimums or you know local, local maximums. And they're just like, all right, well, this doesn't work anymore. So let's, you know, completely revamp the entire system. And, and they're just willing to do that. Uh, you know, and they, they, they found just so much of a better way to handle labeling the auto labeling, and they're just running with that. So, um, just the, the pace of the changes and their commitment to just finding the, the best way to handle this stuff, um, is, it's something I kind of knew generally, but when you go through the details of like how much brain power went into all these decisions and, and what a heavy lift it is to, to make these, these huge uh, changes that, that we outlined here today. I mean, that's, that's for me is what's, what's sticking out. And then they, they just kind of tease like, Oh, nerves. And by the way, like nerves might be some whole thing that kind of blows up the existing <laughs> like situation that we've got. So the, the, the willing to kind of eat or like cannibalize their existing processes is just that, that really stuck out to me.
0: Yeah. Sounds good. Um, yeah, for me, um, I think it's like the execution. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really very, very impressed, very happy with what, how Tesla's progressing. Um, they set out certain goals, they're pushing, they're making it happen. They, they hit problems and they come up with solutions. And when I look back one year two years, three years ago, the progress is really impressive. And, um, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, I, been talking with James about the progression. I think it's like coming up. I think on two years, um, maybe uh, soon. And Tesla has really come a long way. You know, they, they're really, you know, pushing forward. And um, they're not, they're not uh, joking around. You know, they're not playing around. They're really, they have their eyes set on, you know, certain goals, and they're pushing forward to it. And it's just, yeah, it's fun to not just watch it and to. Believe that they're actually making it happen, but actually to try to understand, it's like yeah, actually th- these technical solutions they make sense because you know um, they're solving pr- certain problems right this way, and so it's fun to to be part of that journey. And um, yeah, it's like every time I I dive into stuff, the more confident I get with Tesla's trajectory as a company. Um, James, how about you? Any kind of. Um, I know you've probably watched the AI day presentations many, many times, but just what's your kind of, you know, overall takeaway, I guess, or just any well, closing would,
4: thoughts? It, uh, well, for me, it was pretty overwhelming. Like it took me a while to sort of digest the stuff and go back and read and get through it. The, the thing that strikes me about it is this stuff is, you know, it sounds like word salad the first time you run through it. There's just like so much... Sort of detail of the stuff that's going on, because these these you know this presentation it's really pointed at ten different technical audiences with the with with specialties, and because they're trying to get you know interesting people um, who want to work on interesting problems or are going to be excited about it. You you want to actually show them in the language of the of the specialization, like what we're doing. It's important. It's interesting. It's challenging. And we're pushing the envelope. So, you know, so of course, you know, somebody in that space, when they come up and they talk about it, they're going to throw a lot of jargon in because they're trying to say as much as they can in the five minutes that they have to talk to their audience. But when you, you know, when you look at all this stuff, like it's real stuff, it's not just word salad and it's not just fluff that all of the things that they talk about are really interesting, really impactful. They move really fast. They have really good people. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I'd like people to take away from this, it it's, it's kind of a shame that they don't have, you know, eight hours or 12 hours so that they can talk at a lower level. And, a and a lay audience can get a good sense of, of what's going on. And so, and that's what Dave and I've been trying to backfill here is like, give other people some access to what to what's going on. But the, the thing that I got when I was there, and the thing that I'm still really struck by when I think about this stuff is, Oh my God, there's so much stuff going on. Like, it sounds really cool.
0: Yeah awesome man yeah fun stuff um i want to thank um everyone here matt um smith nicholas gibbs kristen netton james Dama. appreciate all you guys and everyone watching uh thanks for you know joining along in this uh journey um it's going to be a crazy decade ahead (laughs) a lot of advancements Um, take care everyone and i'll link to everyone's uh, twitter uh, profile in the video description all right we'll see you guys bye